the National Archives podcast series, Barbara Hepworth Life and Selected Archives, presented by Inga Fraser, Bryony Paxman, Moena Roach and Bianca Rosman. This talk was recorded on the 14th of July 2015 at the National Archives Q. Hello everybody, my name is Caroline Otway-Searle and I'm Director of Public Engagement here at the National Archives and I'm delighted to introduce this afternoon's event, Barbara Hepworth, Life and Selected Archives. This is featured in our What's On programme and this afternoon's talks are part of a season of events and activities that are taking place over the summer that mark the 40th anniversary of this significant artist's death and which complement a major new exhibition at Tate um, Britain, Barbara Hepworth's Sculpture for a Modern World. Um, I hope that the talks this afternoon will show the richness and diversity of archival material and provide different insights into the ways in which archives are crucial to our understanding of this major artist. Um, so our talks today will be by uh, Inga Fraser, Assistant Curator of Modern British Art at Tate Britain and co-curator of the exhibition Barbara Hepworth Sculpture for a Modern World at Tate Britain, will talk about the archival materials, including Hepworth's correspondence with the artist Ben Nicholson, that helped to shape the Tate exhibition. And that's the first major presentation of Hepworth's work in London for 50 years. Um, and then Bryony Paxman, a modern records specialist here at the National Archives, will use records from the National Archives to explore the 1951 Festival of Britain, looking at contributions of Hepworth and other artists, um, their place in the festival and the festival's legacy for the arts. And then Morwenna Roche and Bianca Rosman from Tate Archives will discuss their project catalogue, Barbara Hepworth's personal and professional papers, which will provide a fascinating insight into both her life and her work. And um, as Emily said, there will be time for you to ask questions after each of the um, talks this afternoon. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Inga Fraser. Hello. Um, it's funny actually to be asked to speak first in this sort of programme because actually, you know, I'm going to be talking about how the archive um, shaped our thinking about the exhibition. And obviously that depends on the work of Bianca Morwenna sort of having been done first of all. But I'm just going to go through um, some of the archives that we used in the run up to the exhibition and how they either influenced our thinking or helped us in a very practical way. So finding lost work. So, I mean, the exhibition begins with a wish list of works um, that we would ideally like to exhibit. Um, and some of these are in known collections in public and private hands, but others um, haven't been seen. So there were a number of works that my um, co-curators on the exhibition, uh, Penelope Curtis and Chris Stevens, had um, tried to get um, for their exhibition at Liverpool in 1994 and St Ives in 2003, um, but which um, they hadn't been able to. But I suppose when we were under starting the research now, we have the wonderful tools provided by Google and the internet, so we were actually able to kind of get quite further along in finding some lost work. So these are two um, stories um, of works that we did and didn't um, manage to locate. So 
Our first stop was looking at the exhibition records for the Tate 1968 show, and they are beautifully compiled and kept and have details of uh, the lenders of each of the works that were, ex- that were exhibited. And one of the works, Barbara Hepworth's Contemplative Figure, was loaned, as we see, by the film director, Mark Robson. And so we were able to refer to that letter and, and find out who owned the work. And, and that information is also kept and in the recently digitised um, sculpture records, um, also in the Tate archive. We had known the work primarily by this photograph, um, which was taken at the time and appears in Herbert Reed's 1952 monograph. So we had this wonderful tantalising side um, photograph of the work and a desire to show as one of the works um, that sort of represents Hepworth's early career in carving um, and is just a beautiful, beautiful work. So Googling Mark Robson was one, one, one way to begin. Um, and I ended up finding that his papers were held in the archives of the UCLA Library, given that he was actually quite a well-known filmmaker. He lived in London in the 50s um, and sort of bought a number of modern British works from Gampel Fees, it turns out. So I found myself having an online web chat with this librarian from California who was able to use her own sort of database tool to look up who deposited the archive at UCLA, um, who the children were, whether whether there was any addresses on publicly held records for them anywhere. And there was for one of them, which I duly wrote to, and then received a reply back. Actually, it was a phone call about a week later from another one of Mark Robson's daughters who said that she had the sculpture. So it was fantastic. And I happened to be going to California last summer. So I went to see her and to see the work, which hadn't been seen since the 1968 Tate show. And there it was sitting on the sort of windowsill in this beautiful modernist house in California. And so that was that. That was found. And we commissioned the photographer for the catalogue to go and photograph the work to see it in the round. Those are some of the stills that we were selecting from. However, it's not always that easy. And another work, Seated Figure, 1927, published in the 1952 Reed monograph, a beautiful, beautiful figure that was included in the White exhibition. And we had records from that show which said it was in the collection of someone called Barney Seal. So Barney Seal, it turns out, was an artist and lived in Chelsea. That's his death notice, which was our sort of beginning. So Barney Seal, I couldn't find that much about. We had a name of his daughter. Obviously, sort of that's quite difficult to track down. And often if you're trying to track a female line, it's more difficult because they get married, etc., and change their names. And so I was in contact with the archivist at the Chelsea Arts Club, um, who was very willing and did digging through all of their records. Um, and whilst not finding anything that would lead me to the daughter, he did find this, which was a, a satirical sketch, shall we say, about the figure, the rather portly figure of Barney Seal. Um, and this was stuck on the men's loo, apparently. Um, so that's just one example of where archive research can lead you. I mean, I actually did end up tracking down uh, Barney Seal's daughter, who's very elderly. She ended up telling me that she left the sculpture in a box in a barn in Kent with some friends. I tracked down the friends. I called the friends. The friend had died. The friend's sons got back to me and said they'd never seen the sculpture. So it was a, it was a tantalizing dead end. And she said, she wrote back to me and said, it's very sad because I remember the children laughing at it when the goose sat on its head. So that's my last vision of that sculpture with a goose sitting on a beautiful Hepworth sculpture. So that's research that didn't turn out so successfully. 
obviously the more traditional use of archives is to sort of develop the themes around an exhibition and, and think about how new material might influence our understanding of a well-known artist or be interesting to an audience coming to museums and galleries today. So I think one of the fascinating things that um, we started to look at with the Hepworth Estate and Sophie were these albums um, which were kept by both Ben Nicholson and Barbara Hepworth and show their working life together in the 1930s. And the way they kind of consciously depicted their work and their studio and their environment very much spoke of a very self-conscious construction of um, an idea of an artistic life. And so that sort of theme of photography of how Hepworth sort of um, documented her work um, and also was aware of how it was being received in the public realm was something that we followed through into the exhibition. So the exhibition features um, some of the same pairings of works by Nicholson with those by Hepworth um, just to sort of show this idea and they also sort of translated them into more formal kind of exhibitions at, during their lifetimes. So in addition to the photographs kept um, within the estate and those in the Tate archive, I also went to other libraries. So we went to the Conway Library, which is an amazing resource and has huge lot of photographic records of works by artists that were primarily set up in, to document and they come from the collections of art historians like um, R.H. Rolensky, who was famous for championing modern British sculpture um, and so he had records of Hepworth's work, and these are just a few showing works that were not found or are now destroyed. So those are an interesting way of looking at Hepworth's work. Um, the other point that came up during the exhibition was how Hepworth photographed her own work. And it seems that she took up the camera in 1933 primarily um, for pragmatic reasons because uh, she wasn't earning a lot of money. They were sort of living a very sort of meager life and she wanted to document her work and to show images of her work to potential dealers and to fellow artists. And so she begins to take photographs herself. And it's clear that she's sort of interested in the final placing of her work where it might look its best. And so these are different uh, versions of um single form sculptures that Hepworth made shown in different locations in the studio of Herbert Reed um, and in the garden in an interior setting. He chose sort of specific views to sort of publish and that's something that shows a kind of awareness in, in how her sculpture was situated in the public and private realm. A sort of more experimental approach comes out in this series of collages which again we are incredibly grateful to Sophie Burness for sharing details of these with us. So this was a series of collages that Hepworth made in 1939, which were published in Architectural Review. And they show various existing works by Hepworth, which in reality are varying between 30 centimetres and 60 centimetres high, sort of scaled up and imagined as if seen on these different settings, which were also clipped out of a previous issue of Architectural Review. They come across as quite surreal to our contemporaries, but collage was a practical way of working um, for artists who wanted to think about their work in different ways, in addition to being a creative tool. So they, they are quite intriguing and show slightly otherworldly looking sculptures almost landed in as if quite unexpectedly into these sort of modernist settings. And these were published in Architectural Review, as, as I say. And I suppose for us, 
that gave us a sense in the exhibition of how Hepworth was thinking about her ambition as an artist, sort of the way that she wanted to work on a bigger scale at that time, but was perhaps unable to because of materials and costs, etc. And also the close link that she felt existed with her work and architecture, how her work may complement modern architecture or sort of enhance it in various ways. So this uh, sculpture by Hepworth, Two Forms, becomes the focus of another sort of image um, that Hepworth was making at that time. So in Hampstead, she was friends uh, with the Hungarian emigre artist Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, who famously experimented with film and photography and kinetic sculpture. And um, these ideas circulating amongst those groups led Hepworth to make this double exposure photograph. And this for us was an instance of Hepworth trying to consider how a, a work so quintessentially three-dimensional could be best displayed in two dimensions, aware of how important print was in uh, promoting her work. She obviously sees the failure in that it can't really display what a sculpture is all about. And so this, this idea of creating two perspectives in one image was something that particularly resonated with me. So thinking about how Hepworth combined multiple perspectives and considered movement in relation to her work of different periods. So something we'll hear more about when we're looking at the Festival of Britain sculptures. So, for instance, there are these sort of three perspective drawings that she did, and she sort of often did these drawings of interlocking figures. There are these sort of more schematic sort of depictions of movement where she's sort of using the materials to create energy on a page. In the late 40s, um, she works again from figure models, so drawing from life, drawing dancers who she asked to pose in her studio. Yeah, so these are, these are things from the Tate Archive drawing records. And that led in 1951 to a collaboration with the stage. So she was asked to produce sets and costumes for Michel Saint-Denis' production of Electra at the Old Vic Theatre. And I think this was an instance of Hepworth being able to think about the staging of her work in its entirety. So as a sculptor, she'd obviously be responsible for the form itself, but not the sort of context of the form, whereas in the theatre, she could be um, responsible for the entire look. So I was I went to the V&A Theatre Collections at Blythe House and looked through the files on Electra there, um, including this great clipping, the obstacles that lie between an English audience and the present day and the enjoyment a Sophoclean tragedy are portentous. I thought that was a good quote. And sort of newspaper clippings. So this is actually relating to her second theatre work that she did uh, with um, Michael Tippett on a production of Midsummer Marriage um, and again producing sets and costumes and again producing sort of sculptural forms for the stage, which extended into costumes. So these are some costume designs, again, from Blythe House and there are others in the estate and I suppose they really show sort of how Hepworth was considering colour and costume and interesting because that's something that you don't get um, with other sort of archival records and how she was sort of incorporating kind of sculptural forms into into this sort of um, language of costume and I suppose they also then relate to her sort of biomorphic figures that she was creating around that same time. So this is something that you can see echoed in works in the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery and the Tate's own collection, in fact. This is a model set for the Midsummer Marriage, something which made its way into the Tate archive, so we might hear details of that, more of that later, trying to put that together. And 
obviously sort of thinking about movement in relation to Hepworth's work, I then wanted to look at the actual kinetic works that she made. So obviously the turning forms for the Festival of Britain, but then other works like the 1956 Orpheus sculpture, which we see at the very end of this fantastic display of electronic goods at Mullard Electronics headquarters. And just thinking about how people understood Hepworth's work and how they appreciated it, I think this photograph is quite telling that it's it's sort of seen as this very futuristic, very sort of technologically savvy kind of merging of arts and sciences, um, which is something that you sort of perhaps lose um, if you consider Hepworth primarily in the context of the landscape in Wakefield and in St. Ives. Nevertheless, the landscape of Wakefield knives provided its own opportunity for thinking about Hepworth and movement. So this is a production shot um, from the 1953 film Figures in a Landscape by Dudley Shaw Ashton, directed by Dudley Shaw Ashton. It was one of the first films to be funded by the BFI's Experimental Film Fund. It was this sort of composite piece with Shorash and directing um, with a narration by Cecil Day-Lewis with words written by Jaquetta Hawkes and music by Hepworth's friend Priya Rainier. And I suppose as a methodology, it provided Hepworth a way of thinking about how she can show how her sculpture can be appreciated, how, it should, how one should move around it and how it relates to different sort of forms in the landscape or elsewhere. And this is a storyboard uh, we have in the Tate archive showing various sort of shots from the film so you can get a sense. You can see sort of how the film was actually very much creating this close alliance with Hepworth's work and the landscape. And this film um, features in the Tate's exhibition. So I encourage you all to visit and watch the film in its entirety. So thinking about film, I also went to the BFI archives. They have a number of films which exist only on 16mm, um, which have not been digitised. And I suppose for me, it was really interesting thinking about, again, the presentation of Hepworth's work and how they sort of, um, how she was positioned in her studio and, and the sort of public um, idea of her as a sculptor. Just as a sort of a side point, for the first room of the exhibition, we wanted to think about Hepworth um, in relation to other women carvers at that time and other carvers of her generation. And I suppose the sort of the how well documented all of these Hepworth archives are sort of came out as a stark contrast when we were trying to look at these lesser known figures. So sort of going back to exhibition catalogues in the in the 20s and seeing these names of women artists and their sort of works being exhibited alongside Hepworth, it proved incredibly difficult to track them down. And I, I ended up finding some works in private collection in Liverpool, um, of an artist who um, exhibited sort of in London in some of the same shows as Hepworth at that time to sort of houses and Penzance with kind of undocumented collections but you really get a sense of how Hepworth really had a sense of how her work was presented in the public realm as really benefiting her legacy and so all of these other artists who were not so concerned with the documentation of their work and the history of their work or the sort of the building history of their work how their legacies have suffered as a consequence and then just briefly I wanted to look at how we looked at the archive with colleagues in the exhibition making process. So these are some old posters for Hepworth shows that we have in the Tate archive. So we sort of passed those around to our design agency and that's the final design that they came up with for the show. Um, 
And then I also just wanted to mention briefly a project that we did um, alongside the exhibition working with an artist called Charlotte Moth. So obviously as curators and as researchers, we sort of are very much following a chronology and following a sort of academic procedure in terms of what material you uncover and how important that is in relation to her body of work. But when an artist approaches an archive, it's a much kind of more open, you know, they're not sort of weighed down by um, sort of all of the the same concerns as we are. So Charlotte actually produced this incredible um, display looking, just picking out themes in the Hepworth archive, um, paying no regard for chronology at all, but just sort of coming up with these beautiful presentations of photographs from the archive, looking at how Hepworth included plants in photographs of her work, looked at light and shadow in different ways, and she made a film about that. So that's a sort of good instance of how opening up archives and working with contemporary artists can have very fruitful results. And finally, just to finish, um, obviously working at an institution like the Tate, um, people get um, an idea of what you're doing, and um, the archive finds you. So once you have issued press release um, you often hear from people who have found things in their own archives or you know have things that you may be interested in and just one small example with these series of photographs by Cornell Lucas um, sort of a fashion photographer and portrait photographer who got in contact and, and sent us these sort of shots of Hepworth and then finally one of the fashion model posing in front of Hepworth in her studio so that's all I have to say, and if you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to take them. The next point is just going to talk to us about the uh, Festival of Britain, so we'll just get the PowerPoint set up there, it's just a minute. Good afternoon. My name is Bryony Paxman and I work as a modern record specialist at the National Archives. Um, I actually feel a bit sheepish because compared to Inga, I've done a lot less legwork because the records I'm going to look at are actually based here. Most of the records that I'm going to talk about are from a record series called Work 25. They are records of the Festival of Britain office. I actually started looking at the Festival of Britain records four years ago to coincide with the 60th anniversary of the festival. I want to use the records today to focus in particular on the festival's relation to art and the contributions by Hepworth and some of the other well-known and less well-known sculptors who contributed to the South Bank site, which was a real centerpiece of the uh, festival events. So first I'm going to outline the broad aims of the festival, just to give a bit of context. I want to look at how the arts were put at the very heart of things. And then I'm going to turn to events on London South Bank and look at how sculpture and art were really integrated into the fabric of the exhibition. And finally, I just want to have a brief consideration of how this was received at the time and how the festival office considered things had gone, you know, the legacy that they'd created. So the Festival of Britain opened on the 3rd of May, 1951, and it's widely remembered for bringing a splash of color to post-war Britain. The festival was the brainchild of Gerald Barry, who was the editor of the News Chronicle. And in 1945, he proposed a great trade and cultural exhibition to promote British design, to attract trade, overseas tourism, and to encourage economic growth. Um, Given the straightened finances after the war, his initial plans were kind of reined in a bit, and um, instead there was a festival of the arts and sciences, and this was shortly to be known as the Festival of Britain. 
a festival council was appointed uh, with an executive committee under Barry, um, and they coordinated arrangements. Regional committees and bodies like the Arts Council, um, the Council of Industrial Design, and the British Film Institute all reported to the committee and were responsible for various aspects of the festival. As I mentioned, the National Archives hold the records of the festival office, um, and that's really where we're going to be based today with this talk. And it's a very rich resource. We've got some examples at the back of the room of some of the documents from that series. There are photographs of the festival preparations, of the completed works. There are minutes of council meetings, uh, information about contracts with all of the various suppliers and contractors. And there's also lots and lots of original artwork. The events of 1951 uh, were wide-ranging. There was a live architecture exhibition in Poplar, there was a fun fair at Battersea Park, there were exhibitions of industrial design in Glasgow, of um, agriculture in Ulster. There's a huge amount going on. At the heart was a stress on British innovation and technology. The festival organisers wanted to showcase modern British design in the arts, in science and in industry. Among the many festival exhibits were sculptures and works by celebrated and emerging artists and designers, and that's really what I'm going to look at today. The new Arts Council was instrumental in ensuring the arts were adequately and appropriately represented at the festival. Inevitably, London was the focus for many aspects of the festival, and alongside the main events at the South Bank, a London season of the arts was held to, quote, display the genius of the nation in the main creative arts. The season saw a concentration of concerts, plays and exhibitions in the capital. There are more than 250 concerts and festival productions or special seasons in opera, ballet, theatre and in the galleries and museums. The festival authorities worked with institutions to ensure the highest possible standards during the special time for the capital. The Arts Council's plans were ambitious. For London, it said, its streets and buildings will be decorated. As well as the major exhibitions, there will be floodlighting and fireworks, festivities of all kinds. Its theatres, concert halls and art galleries will offer their best throughout the whole period of the festival. But London wasn't alone in kind of putting on a show for the festival. There were 22 local arts festivals um, which were designated official festival events. Most of these were based around existing arts festivals, but some were specially commissioned. And the Arts Council wanted it to be as diverse yet specialised as possible. So each centre was allotted a particular aspect of British art, um, and that would be based on local characteristics. So Stratford-upon-Avon um, kind of focused on Shakespeare, Canterbury focused on religious uh, music and drama. The natural highlight was expected to be an exhibition or series of concerts or productions. And the idea was that the visitor would find one place where their particular interest in British art would be focused. And alongside these official festivals, there were also thousands of um, smaller events. And cities, towns and villages throughout the country funded some form of event. So there might be an art or a museum exhibition, theatrical programmes, music festivals. I think there's a poster here for Fetcham in Surrey. They had a fancy dress procession. So it's kind of very varied. And that was exactly what the festival authorities wanted. It was supposed to be a, a nationwide festival and kind of a, a diverse, large-scale event. Uh, the Arts Council arranged a number of special arts exhibitions in London and the regions. The instructions were that all collectors from His Majesty downwards must be approached for loans. 
In London, the festival authorities worked with the national collections to ensure suitable subjects were featured. And things included a special exhibition of children's paintings, a focus on contemporary art. In Battersea, there was a major exhibition of contemporary sculpture. Uh, local galleries and societies in all parts of the country were encouraged to organize their own exhibitions as well. And that they were encouraged to coordinate so that there would be a, a wide scope and things would be fairly well managed. So the council even arranged uh, to book galleries far in advance so that kind of smaller art societies who wouldn't ordinarily have access to that material could, could put on uh, special exhibitions. The Arts Council also launched several uh, competitions in connection with the festival and commissioned works in music, opera, ballet and the visual arts. Uh, music formed a major part of celebrations, and there were lots of commissions and competitions in this area. Commissioned and winning works would be performed or featured in the uh, London season of the arts and locally. And the Arts Council was kind of keen to stimulate public interest in what they saw as the best of modern art. And so they commissioned paintings, murals, and sculptures for inclusion in special festival exhibitions and for the South Bank. And so the image you've been looking at, um, Henry Moore's famous reclining figure, is one of the sculptures that were commissioned for the South Bank site. London South Bank was the focus of festival celebrations. Um, it attracted over 8 million visitors. On land that was largely left to rubble after wartime bombing, there was a miraculous transformation. And within three years, there were 27 and a half acres of pavilions, gardens, fountains, and trees. The exhibits were designed to flow as a narrative of the land and people of Britain. And visitors were advised to follow a route upstream and downstream to understand the displays as part of a story of the nation. The narrative began upstream with pavilions including the sea, minerals of the island, power and production. And the exhibits explored the nation's land and natural wealth and how these um, shaped the British landscape and industry. Downstream pavilions then described the British people, their way of life and how this, served, um, how this was served by modern design and production. Pavilions in this section would focus on uh, schools, homes and gardens, health, sports and the seaside. Each pavilion and zone was assigned to a different architect and they were encouraged to work with artists to incorporate sculpture and murals into the fabric of the site. Throughout, the festival authorities sought to demonstrate the best and the latest in modern British art, design and architecture. The strikingly futuristic Dome of Discovery and Skylon structures, which you can see here, that were prominent features of the site. The Skylon, the tall structure, was selected through an architectural competition designed to demonstrate the originality and inventiveness of British designers. The winning structure, shown here by Paola Moya, was almost 300 feet tall and was suspended high above the ground. It was illuminated at night so that it would appear to be flying above the South Bank site. Uh, this is a second example of an Arts Council commission. It's Jacob Epstein's Youth Advances. It was one of more than 30 sculptures and 50 mural paintings which sat alongside the futuristic, the fun, and, and the, the rather educational exhibits at the South Bank. The festival authorities wanted the widest possible use of murals and sculpture throughout the site. They were keen to integrate them into the structural design of the exhibition as part of their kind of general showcase of British talent. Decisions about the design and layout of the South Bank were managed by two bodies, the Presentation Panel and its design group. And early in 1949, the Arts Council and Presentation Panel agreed to commission two large pieces by eminent sculptors. 
one large piece, which was to symbolize the family, so uh, of a man, woman, and child, and a second piece to represent the spirit of discovery. The Arts Council approached Jacob Epstein and Henry Moore about these commissions. Uh, while they knew what they wanted, the presentation panel um, seems to have been wary of being too specific in their demands. And in the planning notes for their meetings, which we have at the archives, they note that the sculptures may be conceived in any style and subjects like the family would be mentioned to the two sculptors but would not be regarded as limiting. So I think they were keen to give some kind of freedom to, to the sculptors. An initial meeting between the Festival Office, Arts Council, and the two men took place in August 1949. According to the panel's minutes, both artists dismissed a suggested site uh, near the Dome of Discovery uh, and suggested alternative sites on the South Bank. The men seemed to have been fairly relaxed and said they would decide between themselves who would take which site, who would take which subject matter later, and that appears to have been fine by the design group. It was after this initial meeting that Hepworth was approached with a view to finding out whether she would be interested in doing a sculpture for the site that the two men had discarded. And she accepted the brief. The result was contrapuntal forms. In his paper on modern sculpture in the South Bank townscape, Robert Burstow notes that they've got a kind of uplifted expectant gaze, which seemed to symbolise the spirit of discovery. The papers of the design group revealed that Hepworth worked closely with the group and with Cabri Brown, who was the architect for this particular part of the site, to ensure the correct scale and position for her work. The initial site was changed in November 1949 because she said that she felt, quote, out of sympathy with the background to the proposed position of the sculpture. And the design group were fine with this. Um, it seems that they weren't particularly clear in their response because she had to get back to them three months later really asking for a precise location. I think, as Inga said, you know, the position could have a, a bearing. And she said that she needed to know the precise location so that she could finalize the dimensions of her work. And these commissioned works by Epstein, Moore, and Hepworth, some of the better known sculptures on the South Bank, but they're by no means the full story. The festival office was very keen to include young and little known British artists. In July 1949, the Lord President of the Council urged the design group to give younger British artists a chance to work on some of the murals and sculptures. One suggestion that came to fruition was this commission, which uh, was shared with Carol Vogel and the, the students of the Campbell School, Campbellwell School of Sculptors. This particular piece was on the wall of the Power and Production Pavilion, and they received a fee of £600. And the design group notes say that this was spent on in giving the students the opportunity to go abroad to study. Uh, the festival design group was made up of architects, urban planners and designers, including some, some quite well-known names like Misha Black and Hugh Casson. And this group was instrumental in selecting works for the festival. Decisions on pretty much every aspect of the festival that you can think of pass before this group. From sculptures and murals to flagpoles, litter bins, door handles, even the cutlery used in the festival cafes. Many of these items, what might be termed street sculpture, um, were chosen through industrial design competitions. And they show the design group's extraordinary eye for detail and just how integral design and innovation were to every aspect of the festival. The group found and selected its artists in a number of ways. Associations like the Royal Society of Sculptors and the Society of Mural Painters might suggest artists for them to consider. The architects and designers working on various pavilions and exhibits were encouraged to recommend artists and were told to ensure that there was enough space. There should be walls for murals and plinths for sculptures. So it really was part of the design. 
The group made their own recommendations, and there's plenty of evidence of this leading to lots of the commissions, actually. Daphne Hardy, whose sculpture can be seen here outside um, one of the bars at the festival, was one artist who was suggested in this way. And as I'm sure you can imagine, lots of people approached the festival group offering their services. The design group later explained that they chose works which were sufficiently varied to be of interest to lots of different people, but they did insist on high standards. So each artist was thoroughly assessed by the group who would review examples of their work. They'd rate them out of four stars. They'd suggest which work might fit where within the overall exhibition. So, for example, an artist might be given four stars, but a note be placed for outside exhibits only or only on this particular subject matter. If they were very good at fish or something, they would be in the seaside exhibition. So there was, there was quite a lot of thought went into the process of, of drawing up a kind of acceptable approved lists of artists. And many, many, if you look at the, uh, the minutes of the meeting, the vast majority of applications were rejected as unsuitable or of not a high enough standard for the group. And in commissioning work, the group were keen to spread talent and styles around the South Bank site. A work by Reg Butler was intended for the Regatta restaurant, but it was considered that his work would be out of keeping with what would be a, a very popular type of service at this particular cafe. Um, and Hugh Casson, who was the director of architecture, suggested that perhaps that particular corner of the site had too much abstract art already, so they suggested a different artist. The group was also reluctant to commission more than one work from an artist. So in November 1949, one of the architects nominated some people she wanted to work with in her section. But because both of these artists had already kind of been commissioned for other areas of the site, she was told she had to reconsider who she wanted to use. And it seems from their papers that the group knew what they wanted in each particular part of the site. They wanted sculptures that would reflect or tie in with that particular theme. So, for example, the Hepworth Commission on the Spirit of Discovery was placed near the Dome of Discovery. There was going to be a clear plan to much of their commissioning. A few pieces were last-minute additions. This, for example, this piece, Orpheus, was recommended by the Arts Council for inclusion less than two months before the festival opened. And in fact, it was less than a month to go before they'd actually found a site for the sculpture. And the group continued to have, quite once they commissioned the work, they would continue to play a role in the development of that work. And they would review, revise and advise on sculptures, retaining the option to dismiss something until the very last minute. One example of the group's continued intervention is Mitzi Solomon, later Mitzi Cunliffe's sculpture, Root Bodied Forth. It was nine feet tall, so it was large. It was cast in cement with a terracotta finish. And it showed a pair of intertwined figures emerging from a tree. In June 1950, the design group saw a model of the proposed sculpture, and this was intended to go at the entrance to the festival. It was going to be in quite a prominent position. According to the minutes of the meeting, it was agreed, however, that the, the sexual symbolism of the piece was too strongly stressed. And so Misha Black was dispatched to convey this to the artist who was asked to present a revised draft. And she did two weeks later, she pr produced a revised draft for the group who approved it, but again, they weren't entirely happy. And the notes of the minutes say that Mr. Black was asked to go back to Miss Solomon and discuss the, quote, slightly disturbing fact that the tree tapered towards the ground instead of away from it. So that they kind of wanted quite a big role in trying to develop the arts um, in an early stage. And in fact, the group still wasn't done with this piece. And in January 1951, the director of the de design group went to visit Cunliffe in Manchester to discuss press comments that the sculpture was obscene. There have been some photographs leaked to the press um, and, and there was a, a press report that it was considered too obscene for its kind of prominent position. 
So bearing in mind all this kind of tinkering, uh, you may not be surprised to hear that the relationship between the festival authorities and the artists could get a little tense. And indeed, Hepworth herself seems to have had a few kind of wobbly moments with the festival office. As well as her commission from the Arts Council, she was asked by architect Jane Drew to produce a sculpture for her zone near the Regatta restaurant. It's turning forms. In March 1950, Drew contacted the office requesting that they authorise payment uh, to Hepworth for this piece. The architects were actually advised not to approach artists off their own back. They would suggest that the design group who would then approve or not the plans uh, based on things like the, the spread of artists throughout the site. However, Drew's subcontractors had commissioned Hepworth without presenting the idea to the design group. A memorandum in the uh, contract file for Hepworth, a memo wearily states that this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, they say, we have not yet previously seen any proposals regarding Miss Hepworth. This is yet another case in which the artist has been working for a considerable time before we have been made aware of the fact or have been asked to negotiate a contract. They admitted, though, that they were fully committed. The, the work had already started, so, so they, they pressed ahead. And the office um, sent her that their standard paperwork requesting a quotation, and this included lengthy clauses about the artist's responsibility for transport and maintenance of the sculpture once it was on site. And it was described in accompanying correspondence as a contract. But clearly assuming that this was the final contract, Hep sent, Hepworth sent um, quite a panicked letter to Drew um, a couple of weeks later, in which she calls the contract preposterous. She writes, nothing would induce me to sign it at our agreed figure and specified material. It would be lunacy on my part. As the contract stands now, to cover myself even moderately, I should need to quote double the figure or even a bit more. I have never seen so many clauses which could render me bankrupt or so many provisions unfair to the artist. So I think she's kind of having a say, tense relationship. And I think it's, I think, looking at it, the architect's kind of messed up a bit. But it was all kind of cleared up. A revised fee was accepted. Hepworth added, I think, another hundred or pounds to cover the costs of, of, of transporting the sculpture from St. Ives to London. But she continued to encounter problems over payment and logistics. Uh, rather than receive the bulk of her fee on completion, Hepworth needed regular payments to meet her costs. In December 1950, she appealed to the finance department, reminding them essentially that she expected more frequent payments than the norm. She said, you will appreciate the fact that the costs of this large work are very considerable and the position of the sculptor is a grave one financially. She reminded the office that half the money at this stage is the usual business arrangement between sculptor and client. And the money must have made it through because turning forms was delivered to the South Bank in March 1951, but she had faced one last hurdle. On delivering the sculpture, she found that the base wasn't ready. Hepworth describes the rather depressing scene to the festival office. She writes, the sculpture is under a tarpaulin nearby where a lot of rust and dirt is accumulating on it. And this was two months to go before the festival opened. She was assured by the foreman of the site that they would repaint it and you wouldn't see the dust and the rust. But she, she's keen to get confirmation from the festival office that actually any damage would be covered by insurance. So I, I don't know how typical her experience is compared to other artists, but I think it gives an indication of just this was a huge enterprise, the design group dealing with, with hundreds and thousands of, of artists, sculptors, architects. So I guess issues may arise, but I think it's kind of interesting to see that you could have the grand ideas, the artistic plans, but some things could fall down on, on things like logistics or someone not passing the right piece of paperwork. So after all this effort, how was the festival and its art received? In its review of the festival sculpture, the Times reported, it is remarkable how works, how works of this kind, which at once attract the attention and sometimes inflame the passions of those who see them in an ordinary gallery, here seem to belong to the setting 
or even to melt into the background. Misha Black, who sat on the presentation panel in the design group, also suggests that perhaps there was an embarrassment of riches. He wrote that Epstein seemed barely noticed. Hepworth was accepted with a shrug. And it's been suggested that perhaps th there was so much going on, there was so much innovation, new design, that maybe people didn't know where to look. William Fever suggests that, as it turned out, everything conspired to upstage the sculpture, even the wiry chairs and conical flower pots. The sculptures lay marooned for safety's sake in the middle of barrier ponds, or were just things that stood around mute as you ate your sandwiches. Um, but perhaps this was okay because one of the key objectives of the festival was to reawaken public interest in and acceptance of modern design. In its own report on the festival, the Arts Council expressed pleasure that press and public alike had shown interest in and support for their activities in London and all around the country. Tangible benefits could be seen in the works commissioned for the festival, in the renovations and works undertaken in local galleries, museums and concert halls for the regional festivals, and in the unprecedented attention paid to the arts throughout the festival. The Arts Council also gained invaluable experience and information about the country's artistic resources, and this would provide the basis for future work. And the design group certainly met its ambition to showcase modern architecture and planning, incorporating sculpture and artwork to produce what they called an aesthetic unity. And this theme of intelligent planning, science and design, building a modern and better Britain was key to the festival. Whether in living conditions, culture, industrial design, or farm management, the exhibitions of the 1951 festival pointed towards a more hopeful future. In his speech to the first meeting of the Festival Council in 1948, Gerald Barry stated his aims for the festival. He wrote that 1951 must be much more than a year of bigger and better exhibitions or more and merrier festivals. It ought to leave some mark on our history. By the standards we set, by the wealth of talent we disclose, by the recognition of the arts and sciences in the national life, by emphasizing their indispensability for the future, by all these things, the festival should aim to produce tangible and lasting results. And I think that in the enthusiasm shown for the local festivals, in the Arts Council commissions, and in the greater public engagement with and awareness of modern design, it would seem that they achieved many of these aims, incorporating sculpture and design into their South Bank exhibits. Thank you. Hello, um, welcome to Bianca's and my talk about the Barbara Hetworth cataloguing project at the Tate Archive. Before talking about the project itself, I'm just going to give you some, an introduction about the Tate Library and Archive and what we hold. The Tate Archive was the initiative of the then director, Sir Norman Reed, who was worried about the many art archives being brought up and taken overseas. So in 1969, the Tate trustees established a fund to create a separate archive department. Reed was supported by several close friends at the time, including Barbara Hetworth and Naam Garbo whose papers the Tate Archive now holds. The first collection arrived in 1970, and we've been collecting ever since. The department is now formed of the Library, Tate Gallery, and the Archive. The Library holds a collection of resources covering British art from 1500 till present, and international art from 1900, as well as about 4,500 artist books that study different artistic concepts through book form. The Tate Gallery documents the history of the museum from 1893 to present day, and holds files on exhibitions, acquisitions, director's correspondence, and plans of all the Tate museums, including the most recent extension of the Tate Britain that opened in 2013. This is an image from Tate Gallery records when the Tate Gallery, as it was known prior to Tate Modern opening, flooded in January 1928. Sadly, 18 works of art were lost and a further 226 were just damaged. Luckily, we haven't had any more floods since. 
The Tate Archive is the largest archive in the world of British art and holds over one million items that relate closely to the Tate's art collection. From artists, art world figures and arts organisations, more than 750 collections. The type of material varies. Correspondence, photographs, publications, press cuttings, financial material, printed ephemera, legal papers, the list goes on and on. And of course, we have a fair amount of artworks in there as well, in varied mediums. Sketchbooks, models, casts, sculptures, paints, overalls, and we even have some hair from an artist model, as well as several of Turner's palettes. There's also a separate audiovisual collection containing oral history recordings of artists, and there is a large section of artists' design posters. And 100,000 images of artists in the photographic collection, some of these can be seen in the present Hetworth exhibition. Some of the archive highlights include Francis Bacon, Cecil Collins, Graham Sutherland, the ICA, Ben Nicholson, John Piper, and Keith Vaughan. The archive regularly gets consulted by curators, as we've heard from Inga, uh, for exhibitions held in the galleries, and items from the archive are used. Again, there are some in the present Hetworth exhibition. One of the supporters of the archive is Niall Garbo, a friend of Hetworth, who became close friends with Hetworth and Ben Nicholson whilst living in London, and moved to St. Isaac's with them at the start of the Second World War. He, however, emigrated with his wife and daughter to America several years later, but left his mark on art in St. Ives. The archive has several collections of Garbo material, including drawings and sketches for his sculptures, tools, models, and photographs, including this one of his earliest work, Head Number One, which is the main Tate Archive collection. Any of these records can be viewed in the Hyman Crippman Reading Rooms at Tate Britain, where open Monday to Friday, 11 till 5. Recently, the archive was granted funding by the Heritage Lottery Fund to digitise a selection of artists' archive material to integrate it with the rest of the art collection on the website. The project known as the Archives and Access digitised 52,000 pieces of material from 52 different artists from across the UK. This has included some of the Barbara Hepworth material that she donated in 1972, her sculpture record books. When you search for Hatworth, you can now see her sculptures and some of her archive material at the same time. I will now pass you over to Bianca, who will talk about the cataloguing project and her part in the cataloguing the professional papers of Hatworth. I first want to give you an overview of Hatworth's collection at the Tate Archive. Barbara Hatworth has a long-standing affiliation with Tate Gallery. Not only was she a good friend of the gallery's director, Sir Norman Reed, she also donated 15 works to the gallery in the 60s and served as a Tate trustee from 1965 till 72. As Movena already mentioned, Hepworth was very interested in the formation of the archive and followed the establishment of it very closely. In 1972, Tate received the first boxes of archival material from the artist. These included some books, exhibition catalogues and her sculpture record books. The sculpture record books were compiled by the artist throughout her life and give a complete record of her work from 1925 onwards. They contain details about each of her works with information on medium, dimensions, sales, exhibitions, and often there is even a photograph included. Further material was handed over to the archive after Hepworth's death, as she offered in a codicil to her will additional material to the archive namely, and I quote, all correspondence of potential historical interest. So over the following years, various collections arrived at the archive, her personal papers being the last ones to arrive in 2013. In 2003, two small collections arrived. Inga mentioned it before. The first one concerns the production of Michael Tippett's opera, The Midsummer Marriage, for which Hepworth designed the costumes and the set. And the collection contains the set and the costume models, but also letters from Tippett to Hepworth, which covered the entire process of the production. 
that includes also detailed explanations of the meaning of the music, the libretto, and visual representation. The second collection, which arrived at the archive in 2003, contains material relating to the film Figures in a Landscape, Combo, and Sculpture of Barbara Hepworth, which was directed by Dudley Shaw Ashton. The collection includes the storyboard, correspondence, photographs, and reviews. One year later, the archive received the Barbara Hepworth Estates Remaining Prints Collection, a collection of lithograph and screen print proofs and some preparatory drawings. Here, as an example, it shows the proof of Castor Rock Gleaming Stone, which was made for poor merchants' publication, Stones. And finally, the archive received in 2013 the early records of the Barbara Hepworth Museum, which was established in 1976 according to Hepworth's wishes. The collection provides a glimpse into the formation of the museum, the management of which was handed over to Tate in 1980. It includes administrative records, photographs, and price cuttings. So, let's get to the cataloging project. The cataloging of the papers of Hepworth was part of a wider cataloging project at Tate Archive, which started in July 2013 and was funded by Tate members. The focus of the project was to catalog a range of collections relating to Hepworth and the St. Ives art scene. It included the cataloging of the records of the London-based gallery and art dealer Arthur Tooth and Sons, where Hepworth held some of her earliest exhibitions. And here you can see an exhibition catalog and private view card of one of an exhibition in 1930, so very early. Also catalogued were the papers of Hepworth's friend, the collector and advisor Marcus Bramwell, then the personal papers of the Cornish artist John Wells, who was not only a friend of Hepworth, but also one of her first assistants. And here, the example on the left-hand side shows two pages from Wells' sketchbook, where he wrote in 1942 that Barbara has encouraged him to try sculpture. The other entry shows his sculptural sketches, which show Hepworth's influence. And finally, catalogued were the papers of the art critics Margot Eads and Eileen Ramston, with whom Hepworth exchanged letters discussing her artwork in detail. Here, this example shows a letter in which Hepworth discusses the anthropomorphic nature of her sculptures. Together, all of these collections provide a rich resource for anyone interested in Hepworth and the wider artistic community in St. Ives. So, my colleague Morena and I were tasked with the cataloging of the papers of Hepworth. This strand of the project also received additional funding from the Barbara Hepworth estate and was completed in May 2014. Hepworth's personal and professional papers arrived at the archive at different times. The first part in 1996, followed by the substantially larger one in 2013. Due to the significant time difference between the arrivals of the two parts, it was decided to treat and catalogue both collections separately. So I will first give an overview of the collection which arrived at the archive in 1996, also referred to as TGA 965, and highlight some of the key topics and documents within it. And then Morena will talk in detail about the collection which arrived in 2013. So, the collection in 1996 is entitled The Correspondence of Barbara Hepworth and primarily concerns her professional life as an artist. 
the correspondence itself was arranged according to the type of institution the letters were with. These include letters with galleries, art dealers, schools, universities, government bodies, publishers, foundries, storage companies, and tools and equipment suppliers. In addition, the collection also contained a small amount of personal correspondence. This was arranged alphabetically by correspondence. So let's have first a look at the professional correspondence. Most of Hepworth's professional correspondence either relates to, obviously, the production, loan, acquisition, exhibition and commission of her artwork, her involvement in committees, sponsor and trusteeships, the receipt of honors and prizes, and also correspondence relating to publication, films and broadcasts. So I will um, talk in detail about the first two categories. So at the onset of 1950, Hepworth became increasingly established. She had her first solo exhibition in New York in 1949, and as we have already heard, contributed some sculptures for the Festival of Britain in 1951. Her wider recognition also led to changes in her working practice. That means she started to take on assistance for preparatory work in 1950, and six years later began to carve plaster specifically for casting in bronze. The new workshop structure and extended repertoire of media brought an increase in productivity and scale, and resulted in a high output of carved works and editions of bronzes. The professional correspondence starts exactly at this point, and as such reflects the growing demand for her sculptures either for acquisitions, to be included in exhibitions, or for new commissions. So first I want to talk about the correspondence with art dealers. Wider recognition also meant to ensure an increase in the di distribution of her work. So Hepworth signed an exclusive agency agreement with the London-based art dealer Gimprofils in 1957. The collection contains a vast amount of correspondence between them, and provides the reader with a fascinating insight into the up and downs of their relationship and with details relating to the organization of exhibitions and sales of her work. You can uh, look at a facsimile letter which Hepworth wrote to Gimple in 1972 telling them why she wants to leave them. Then in 1972 Hepworth transferred to the art dealer Marlboro Fine Art mainly because she still sought prominence in America. The example here shows a press release of her first exhibition at Marlborough after signing the contract. She exhibits here for the first time her group of bronze sculptures, nine figures on a hill. This brings us to one of the main themes in Hepworth's professional correspondence, the exhibition of her work. Throughout her life, Hepworth took part in a considerable amount of national and international exhibitions, and the collection contains material relating to most of them. An example would be her exhibition at the Rijksmuseum Kröller-Müller in Otterloh, her retrospective at Date Gallery, or her one-man show at Hakone Open Air Museum in Japan. The material does not only include letters between the artist and the organizing body, but also contains lists of works to be exhibited, plans of the exhibition space, sometimes even showing the intended placement for sculptures, the exchange of technical details relating to the installation and care of her sculptures, exhibition catalogues, reviews, 
lets us do lenders of works and even loan forms. So here as an example, I have a loan form in which she lends a range of her works to the Penwith Gallery for an exhibition. The other example you can view, and it's a manuscript written by Hepworth about sculpture and form, which was published in the Whitechapel Exhibition Catalogue in 1954. I briefly want to talk about the correspondence relating to commissions. From 1950 onwards, Hepworth also received commissions for works. An example would be theme on electronics for Mallard House or winged figure for the John Lewis department in Oxford Street. The example I want to talk about is one of her later commissions, completed in 1972, called Theme and Variations. It is a mural bronze sculpture for the redevelopment of the Cheltenham and Gloucester Building Society head office in Cheltenham. This is a good example as it shows the wide range of material contained within her correspondence. So in addition to letters, we also have an ar architectural drawing of the building, a photograph of the office showing the location for the sculpture, and a sketch by the Morris Singer Foundry showing the intending casting method for her work. The last topic I want to talk about within Hepworth's professional correspondence is her involvement in committees, sponsor, and trusteeships. What becomes apparent when looking at her correspondence is that she had a keen interest and belief in the public role of both art and artists. Her presence in various committees, sponsor, and trusteeships reflects this, and the correspondence suggests that she dedicated considerable effort to these activities. So Hepworth was, for example, a founding member and then an executive committee member of the Penrith Society of Arts. She was also a governor of the Farmer School of Art. She was the first female trustee at Tate Gallery for seven years. So here, for an example, you can see the letter confirming her trusteeship. But she was also a member of the Cornwall Works of Art in School Subcommittee, an initiative to put together an art collection for primary schools in Cornwall. So, and finally, I want to give two examples from the category of personal correspondence. The first one is a sketch which is part of the correspondence with her long-standing friend, the potter Bernard Leach, with whom she was awarded the Freedom of St. Ives in 1968. This sketch from Bernard was sent to Barbara from Japan in 1971. It is entitled Barbara at Hakone Ora and is a reference to her exhibition which was traveling through Japan at this time. The second example are letters from Piet Mondrian to Hepworth, written during the Second World War from London. In the correspondence, he explains the impossibility for him to move to Cornwall, like she did. He gives an account of living in the city during this period, and the correspondence stops with telling her about the receipt of his American visa. I will now pass on to Movena, and she will talk some more about her project. I'm now going to talk about the cataloguing of the second deposit of Hepworth material, also known by the reference number TGA 2002, and the title The Remaining Personal Papers of Barbara Hepworth. This was donated to the Tate Archive by the Hepworth family during the period 2012 to 2013, after Alan Bowness had finished his research with the papers. The material is more complex and loosely organised in the collection that arrived in 1996, and a lot larger, with nearly 70 boxes. Most of the material dates from the 1940s onwards concerning Hepworth's life in St. Ives, 
there is only a small portion of earlier material. There were some data protection issues with some documents, as well as dealing with some conservation problems. I'll go into detail on that later on. Initially, looking through the collection, there were several areas that could be identified into an archive structure. Personal and professional correspondence, professional papers, personal papers, and financial material. The largest part of the collection was the personal correspondence to Hetworth. There are over 10 boxes, which, although it doesn't sound a lot, does amount to several hundred letters. However, thankfully for me, the correspondence had already been sorted by the Hetworth family into alphabetical order and some kind of date order within that. I just needed to go through and finalise the order and check for any data protection issues, of which there were a couple. These were redacted and closed. There were only two people out of all of this who I couldn't identify. Some of the highlights of the correspondent include letters with friend Margaret Gardner, Marcus Bromwell, art critic, who we've already heard about, Janet and Bernard Leach, the potters in St. Ives, Herbert and Ludo Reed, again friends and art critic, as well as some family members, Elizabeth Summerson, her sister, John Summerson, who was her brother-in-law and who was also the director of Sir John Stone Museum, and her father, Herbert Hepworth. There are also some famous names who have written to her, the composer Benjamin Britten, poet and fellow Cornish person Charles Corsley, Mark Roscoe, and Miriam Garbo, who was wife of Noel Garbo, and two of her assistants, who later became artists in their own right, Sir Terry Frost and John Wells. The trickiest part of sorting the correspondence were the letters from Ben Nicholson, who was Hetworth's second husband. There were 277 letters overall. Again, I'm grateful to the Hetworth family for sorting these out before they arrived at the archive, as Ben had a habit of not dating his letters correctly, just writing Tuesday morning, Friday evening, with no year, which was not much help to me. But uh, their research could date them more accurately. They were also quite hard to read, as he had a habit of underlining, circling words, instead of rewriting them, as well as filling in all possible parts of the paper. There are some where he's literally written all the way around, and there's no room. With the correspondence from Hetworth to Nicholson, in his archive collection that was catalogued several years ago, between the two of them, you now get a good picture of their relationship, family life, living in St. Ives, and of course, their artwork. My favourite letter is from Akiji Kaoshi, the director of the Hakone Open Air Museum in Japan, where Hetworth had a show in 1970. He wrote to Hetworth thanking her for organising the exhibition and giving her a piece of calligraphy with her name on, in Japanese meaning, and I quote, A brave soul like a wild horse will live long and with a gentle, kind heart. There is also some professional correspondence in this collection. Um, it was catalogued similarly to how Bianca organised uh, TGA 965. Correspondence with art dealers, local governments, charities, publishers, universities, etc. So when a researcher looks into Hetworth in the Tate archive, there is some continuity in all the records. And this is just an example of the National Portrait Gallery writing to Hetworth, asking her to be on the list of distinguished persons, which is quite nice. And the photographs were then taken by Waterbird, and you can see it on their website. The main difference from TGA 965 was a large amount of material concerning the UN Commission of Single Form. This sculpture was made in, the, in memory of the second UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, who was sadly killed in a plane crash in 1961. He was an admirer of Hetworth's work, and the two corresponded she gave him some sculptures for his office, so it seemed fitting to ask her to produce a tribute. The single form ended up being Hetworth's largest piece of artwork at 6.4 metres high, and was availed in 1964 outside the UN headquarters in New York, with Hetworth attending the event. The archive details the correspondence with various UN members organising the commission, DAG, as well as information on the payment, shipping of single form, as, as it was so large it had to be shipped in separate bits and then reassembled on site, and the creation of a suitable base, and several documents from the unveiling ceremony, including this nice photograph. A single form can still be seen outside the UN headquarters today in New York. Some of the professional papers were mixed with the correspondence, so these need to be separated out. There are detailed volumes of her drawings, lithographs, and silk screens, each listing the date the artwork was made, where it was exhibited, and who owns it, showing how organised Hepworth was. 
These volumes are similar to sculpture records that Bianca mentioned earlier that she donated in 1972. So they're catalogued in a similar way, each in their own category, lithographs, silk screens, etc. However, some of these had to be closed as they list details of owners of artwork who might still be alive, and as their volumes, it's hard to redact the information easily. There are other professional papers, documents concerning supplies she used, including all the various foundries where the sculptures were cast, as well as all her sh the shipping records of the sculptures. There are some visitor books, publications about her and those that were given to her. There is also a small amount of her artwork, including a few sketches and chronologies that were possibly preparatory work for her sculptures. The personal papers were quite varied. However, looking through them several times, some themes were obvious. Information on her health, records regarding her birthday, certificates and awards, music books and lists that she created, and also several items that couldn't fit into these areas and had to be catalogued as items. Photographs of her son, Paul, who sadly died in the 1950s in a plane crash, a notebook belonging to her father, Herbert Hepworth. One of my favourite items in the collection, this photo frame of the head of Father Hepworth by John Skeeping. This sculpture was made alongside the one by Hepworth of Skeeping whilst they're both in Italy. And sadly, both of the original sculptures are now lost. This photograph is an invaluable resource. Financial papers cause the most problems whilst cataloguing. Some of them listed details of staff wages, owners of artworks, and how much they were paid. So obviously, due to the Data Protection Act, some of these had to be closed. Again, working with the Hetworth family, we were able to identify if the artwork in question was still owned by the original buyer, and whether it had gone to an art gallery, and whether the person in question was still alive. This way, not all the material had to be closed, and where possible, redacted and closed separately. Yeah, here is an image of some of the many, many receipts Hetworth kept. There are over eight boxes of these, all modelled up of 20 years of material and cover all kinds of subjects, art supplies, groceries, that kind of thing. So they took quite a long time to sort out, uh, but they were eventually sorted into some kind of date order. There were some other problems with the financial papers, as they were stored in a suitcase in a damp environment, so some had got a bit mouldy. Uh, these had to be separated from the rest of the collection to protect from further damage, and are currently awaiting treatment from conservation. Uh, here is not an example of mouldy material, as I didn't really want to take a picture of that, um, but an image of a couple of the burnt letters that are in the collection from the fire in which she sadly died in 1975. These were simply placed in seagulls to protect them from further damage and researchers can still look at them. Originally, the property and legal records were part of the financial series, but after sorting through them in more detail, I decided to separate them. They give good detail on the various properties Hetworth owned, including the Trewin Studio, which is now the Barbara Hetworth Museum in St. Ives, as well as other small studios that she lent out to friends in the town. The legal records mainly concern property records <coughs> agreements with her art dealers and correspondence on her mother's and her own will. This is just an example of one of the extensions that she wanted on Truin Studio in the 1960s. Overall, this project took nine months and four collections were catalogued. Over 100 archive boxes were used and 2,709 records were made on car. These archive collections concerning Barbara Hepworth give a good insight into her life, professionally and personally, and are a valuable resource for any art historian to use. If you'd like to find more about, about Hepworth and look at these records, please come and visit the Tate Reading Rooms. Again, we're open Monday to Friday, 11 till 5. We're also having a show and tell on Hepworth in the Archive Reading Rooms on the 7th of August, half 12 to half past 2, where some of these records will be displayed along Samson Library material and some of her tools. Uh, thank you all for coming, and please ha have a look at the facsimiles that we've all been talking about. And thank you for Anne for organising this. <laughs> Um, yes, as Emily says, just really want to draw things to a close and obviously thank our speakers today. So that's Inga Fraser, Bryony Paxman, Rowena Roche and Bianca Rosman. Thank you very much for interesting and illuminating talk.
I'd also like to thank Anne Chow and, and Emily Sitson for making today happen, really, and all the organisation that often goes um, unthanked. So thank you, Anne, very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.